Unbath in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and as a lifelong Democrat in a red state, I am completely used to my representatives openly ignoring my ideas and opinions. Hi, my name is Dave. I'm calling from uh, Massachusetts. I'm an unenrolled voter in the state, and I have a tendency to lean conservative Republican in this state where the Senate uh, has a, a huge control with the Democrats, of 37 Democrats to uh, three Republicans. It's very difficult to, to think your vote really matters. Hi, I'm Grace from Roswell, Georgia. I'm a former New Yorker, a Democrat, living in a Republican state. And if it wasn't for my private group on Facebook of over 2,000 liberal moms I don't know how I would survive living in Georgia. We share with each other things like uh, ways to protect marginalized peoples. And many, many times I've thought about leaving, but I've made a life here and I'm here for the duration. For many, voting is a chance to make sure their voices are heard. But full and fair representation can fill out of reach depending on where you live and the party that holds the majority in your city or state. We're taking a look at political islands during this conversation. These are places where political demographics don't align with the states in which they're located. We'll discuss why living in these political islands can be frustrating but important for democracy. We bring you this conversation from Austin, Texas. It's part of our Remaking America collaboration with KUT, Austin's NPR station. Remaking America looks at the ways our democracy is and is not working for all of us. After the break, we get things started in Austin and later on head to California to talk about red islands in blue states. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that, Basically, you have a character flaw. If you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh, my gosh, this is not abnormal. Right. And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our first guests. Joining us in studio here at KUT is Audrey McGlinchey. She's the housing reporter for KUT. She was formerly the City Hall reporter. Audrey, it's great to have you. Hi, Jen. It's great to be here. Also with us is Sophia Lynn Lakin. She's interim co-director of the Voting Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU. Sophia, welcome. Hi, thank you. So, Audrey, just over 46% of voters in Texas went for Joe Biden in 2020. But in Travis County, that's the largest county in Austin, almost 72% went for Biden. That's according to 2020 presidential election results from Politico. How would you describe Austin's political landscape? Yeah, so for a very long time, Austin has been sort of this counterculture to the rest of the state. Um, One former governor called us the blueberry in the tomato soup. Um, And, you know, we've really... 
that's that's been the culture in Austin for a long time. We're the seat of the University of Texas at Austin, the biggest uh, the biggest university in the UT system. Um, we are you know the live music capital of the world. A lot of historically, a lot of artists have flocked here. So again, we've built this counterculture um, compared to the rest of the state. So as you mentioned, historically we have voted um, Democrat in large large numbers um, compared to the rest of the state. How does this compare to other Texas cities? Yeah, so I mean, histor- again, historically Austin has had a very uh, democratic voting uh, history, but uh, recently we've seen other big cities in Texas go uh, for the Democrats. In the last election, last presidential election, for example, Biden won Houston and Dallas, um, and so we're seeing large cities in Texas follow in the wake of Austin, but uh, not by the ma- not by the uh, majority that Austin sees uh, when it comes to voting. How would you describe the relationship between the city of Austin and the state? I mean, adversarial, to say the least, uh, certainly. Um, so typically what how that relationship pans out is that uh, city council members, local elected fish officials here in Austin will pass something, something that they deem uh, progressive. For example, in 2020, the city of Austin cut uh, a lot of funding to its police department in the wake of um, protests uh, for racial justice. Um, the state then responded almost immediately. I think Governor Greg Abbott sent out a press release that day or the day after saying, we're going to pass a law to make it impossible for cities to do anything like this again. And they did it. Um, And that's honestly really how it goes, right? The city council passes something, the state or the governor sort of uh, latches onto this and they pass something the next legislative session. I'm curious to hear how that dynamic played out when it came to COVID restrictions, because we saw in many places, state legislatures overriding cities when it came to those restrictions. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as we saw in many cities across the country, Austin passed uh, a mass mandate. Um, The state uh, reacted very quickly. Um, The governor had a disaster declaration in place which allowed him to issue an executive order saying we cannot mandate masks. And eventually he came out and also issued an order saying we can't mandate vaccines. Um, and that disaster declaration declaration is actually still in place, which allows him, which gives him more power than, than typical to sort of override these local decisions. How does that dynamic impact the morale of Austin voters, their their willingness to engage. In- yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I'll give you one, you know, just an anecdote. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a press conference covering um, something that the city council was set to pass regarding um, eviction uh, moratoriums. And anyway, I asked... Um, you know, uh, any fear that the state is going to overturn this when the legislature um, convenes. And someone shouted, you know, we're always worried about that. Um, That's always a fear when we sort of pass something in Austin or support something um, deemed progressive here in Austin. So I think when it comes to state races, you know, we've seen a lower voter turnout um, in early voting this year compared to 2018. Folks just might be thinking, well, you know, when it comes to the state elections, why bother? Sophia, for people living in states that swing firmly either red or blue, why is voting still important? Yeah, thanks so much for for that question. And um, happy election day, everyone. And uh, my message would be go, go, go vote, um, no matter what. This is, this is a real issue, this issue of morale that we were just talking about. Um, it's, for example, why the redistricting process is so important. It's why it's so important to have maps that are fair, that give all voters a meaningful opportunity to weigh in on important issues. It's why we're fighting in court over the last year across the country to ensure that uh, voices aren't minimized, especially voices of color. But here's what I would say, excuse me, voting is perhaps the most fundamental political act 
People have fought and died to have this right. Casting a ballot, even if your preferred outcome isn't the winning one, that's, that's a form of core political association. It's putting you in community with the others in your community that share similar views. Uh, we talked about uh, from the, the listener that other people aren't voting. You don't know that you can come together if people aren't expressing themselves through that political act, that vote. So by adding your power to, and strength to that community, um, that's, it's really powerful to know that you're not alone. I'd also emphasize quite strongly, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, that usually and often when folks are talking about their vote not having an impact, that's frequently in reference to statewide or federal offices. Uh, for folks, for those folks especially, I would emphasize the importance of the many, many other down-ballot races for offices that probably ultimately have a bigger impact on issues that affect your daily life mayor, city council, school board. Yes, it's true in some instances, you'll have the state legislature come in and perhaps override some of the things that you're doing at the local level. But on so many bread and butter day-to-day issues, uh, your voice is going to make a huge difference um, in those communities. Well, let's go to this email we got from one listener. Please don't fool yourself. Austin is still Texas. Look at turnout. Look at diversity in public offices. Look at who controls the backroom politics, public schools, homelessness, etc. There's been the gentrification of black and Hispanic areas over the years with minimal policy to address displacement. Texas is a very big state. I worked for the last elected statewide Democrat, Land Commissioner Gary Morrow. Democrats need to figure out how to organize in South Texas and rural areas. Politically, Houston is better organized and more progressive. And Lucia tweets, when I first moved to Austin in 2008, I was amazed by the acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community and the vast minority cultures. I felt welcomed and safe within this bubble. But there's the recent influx of out-of-state mega wealth. And these communities are either losing their safe spaces due to redevelopment or the rising cost of living is pushing minorities further out of Austin. Audrey, what's your response to that? I mean, those folks are are not wrong at all. Um, I think uh, for a long time, there's been a lot of question of, of, of like, who is Austin's progressivism for? Um, uh, you know, we were one of, uh, you know, in, two, I believe it was between 2000 and 2010, we were the only um, large city in the U.S. losing its black population. Um, and so there there really is, I think, that fair question of who do these, um, you know, this, this, uh, this progressivism serve? Um, and I think, you know, someone mentioned homelessness there. Recently, um, in 2019, we had the city council uh, decriminalize homelessness. So they, um, you know, did not make things like sleeping outside, uh, panhandling. It was no longer something that police could ticket people for. Um, And then we had a group here run by the head of the local GOP party um, actually put that back on the ballot. And um, Austin voters, by a wide margin, um, decided to recriminalize homelessness um, last year. So um, I think what all those folks say is, is you know, has some uh, accuracy. Yeah. Now, Sophia, you alluded to some of the court challenges you've been pursuing. You're part of efforts to challenge voting laws in Texas that your group is called discriminatory. How have these laws made voting in Texas more difficult? Yes, we are. We have a lawsuit along with a number of other organizations challenging um, a suite of restrictions passed in the wake of the 2020 presidential election. And um, as has been alluded to, people were turning out, especially voters of color in places like Texas, um, in numbers that uh, we should all be very excited about and um, using um, methods of, of uh, voting 
um, early voting, mail voting, and the like, in numbers that hadn't been used uh, before. And what we saw were attacks on um, those particular kinds of methods of voting in a way that was a precisely targeted and a way that's having, um, there's always already been um, um, uh, news reporting and, and, and information from the primary elections that these laws are having an impact on um, many voters who are trying to cast their ballots using these different means. So um, they are having especially a particular uh, pernicious effect on communities of color where we know that um, many of these communities, they, there's unfortunately an overlap between um, already so many burdens on, the, on daily lives as a result of systemic uh, inequalities in this country and adding additional restrictions, additional barriers, additional burdens. Um, each time you do that, that reduces an ability of this person to be able to um, get their ballot to the ballot box and be able to have that ballot counted. And so we're seeing um, it play out on the ground, whether or not these people are actually able to get the, overcome those barriers through great efforts on their own, great efforts with our partners on the ground. Um, we are seeing that these new laws, these new restrictions are having an impact on people's um, voting experience across the board. And briefly, Sophia, where do those challenges stand? We are still in court challenging them. Um, and uh, uh, they're in the process of um, different processes these challenges across the board in different states in the country are all at different phases, primarily in a process called discovery and litigation. Um, unfortunately, while um, on, in prior years, and I think there's been a lot of questions about this, we would have um, been moving pretty quickly in court to try to get some sort of relief prior to this election. Um, the court, the Supreme Court in particular, has made a very clear through a number of decisions over the last two years, um, pretty much saying it's any sort of uh, uh, emergency style litigation in, in, in the months leading up to the, uh, this particular midterm election probably wouldn't be sustained because the so-called Purcell principle, this idea that as you get closer and closer to an election, um, courts should not intervene to change the election rules. We think that, you know, there are circumstances under which that should not be the case and um, courts should be considering them on a much more case-by-case -case basis, but that has pretty much extended the lifetime of some of these litigations um, and unfortunately meant that rules that we would say are discriminatory, have this really burdensome impact, are going to be in place this election cycle. We got this tweet from Catherine. He says, I vote, but sometimes there are literally no Democrats on my ballot in local elections. At that point, how do I express myself by voting? We need people of the minority party to actually run for local elections. Sophia, how would you respond to Catherine? I, I think that's a, I, absolutely right. Is Catherine interested in, in running? It starts with one person, but um, I think that's exactly right. You know, um, and that's part of the problem with uh how elections are structured and run and often in a lot of places in terms of getting the political funding, the funding to be able to run, um, how districts are drawn such that people who, who live in that district are, are even interested and able to run, have the knowledge to be able to run. So um, empowering and going into these communities, giving them the strength and support to be able to run is obviously an important piece of people being able to express themselves on the ballot.
You can always write in a candidate. (laughs) Audrey, I want to turn to just the the balance of power in Texas briefly. Um, It's typically a so-called weak governor state, but there was some shifting of power during the pandemic. Explain really quickly what happened. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier this disaster declaration. So Texas is among one of the few states that still has a COVID disaster declaration in place, Um, which is a bit ironic because our governor here, Governor Greg Abbott, very early on, um, as I mentioned earlier, was stopping things like mass mandates and vaccine mandates, um, you know, urging businesses to stay open in, in you know, when, when COVID was really spreading. Um, but it does allow for him to, he, it gives him a lot more power than typically. typically. So for example, he can issue executive orders related to this disaster declaration. He can do things like um, issue contracts in a, in a different process with less oversight. Um, so yeah, so that's, I think, one example of ways in which uh, a state in, in which the governor doesn't have as much power as other states can use um, various avenues to create more power for themselves. And what does that mean for a city like Austin? Um, that's a great question. It means we have less power. The, the local uh, municipalities have less power. So we don't have the power to do something like a mass mandate or to require businesses or shops to require people to be vaccinated. So it strips uh, a place like Austin of some power. We also got this email from Paula who says, I don't think enough is being mentioned about how local elections, referendums, and judicial seats are also essential reasons for people to go out and vote in every election. Though your vote might not feel powerful if your affiliation is in opposition with your state, you do have the power to affect change in your own backyard. Sophia, what we're hearing there is talking about representative democracy. Voters are able to vote directly on issues and on those down-ballot races that, as you said, really have an impact on how you live your life from day to day. So just once again, what role can voting on like ballot measures play in shifting power from lawmakers to citizens? I think that's a great point and um, where your state, your community, and some municipalities offer this as well, have, um, you can have direct say in policy issues through these ballot referendum, ballot measures, municipal measures as well. Um, And you should... If you see those on your ballot, if you know that they're there, this is you being able to weigh in um, directly yourselves um, on those particular ballot initiatives and and measures. And we have a number of these that we are seeing um, across the country on the ballot this year on issues from immigration uh, to abortion rights to voting rights. Um, And folks should be on the lookout uh, for those. But like I said, also on a municipal um, and more local referendum, I had a number of those on my ballots this year as well. Um, Those can have extraordinary impact on your day to day uh, life if you care about housing policy, uh, policing in your neighborhood, uh, you know, health and safety, education policy in your neighborhood. Um, These are, are places where you can have a very much a very much direct say. Let's get to one more voicemail. I live in the Blue Island of New Orleans in the Red Sea of Louisiana. It's easy to feel as if we're in our own little bubble because so many people around us believe as we do. I really feel bad for the other blue voters in the rest of Louisiana because they've been gerrymandered out of existence. According to our population, there should be at least one or two more majority minority districts and the state legislature has refused to comply. I believe it's in litigation. However, there will be no decisions made until after the midterms. I used to live in a congressional district that was competitive 
with the redrawing of the maps, a referendum passed by voters asked for a special commission to be set up to redraw boundaries. They did. The legislature overrode them, and I have been moved many miles north while they secured four uncompetitive Republican districts. It is very frustrating as I value voting and feel completely disenfranchised. Cynthia, Maggie, thanks for those messages. So we're hearing their concerns about how gerrymandering impacts who gets hurt and who doesn't. Sophia, you're leading several cases challenging gerrymandering around the country. Briefly tell us about those. Yes, absolutely. First of all, the Louisiana case that was mentioned, we are very much in the midst of that fight. And um, when it comes to the uh, congressional maps there. We very, I'm very much in agreement about the problems with that particular map. And we were we actually succeeded um, on a preliminary sort of early stage of the case. The judge agreed with us that the map likely violated the federal law, the Voting Rights Act. Um, and unfortunately, this is one of those cases where the Supreme Court has said it was too close to the, the upcoming elections for us to uh, be willing to essentially allow this order to go into effect and have the maps redrawn. So this is a huge problem and, of course, allows, um, I would say, legislatures to have essentially a free pass um, when it comes to drawing these discriminatory maps and having in place elected officials off of these maps that a court has already said they think likely violates federal law. So huge problem. We're in the process of of challenging that case is ongoing, um, but, um, but it is a, a huge, huge concern. And unfortunately, when it comes to gerrymandering, this is, this is as old as the democracy itself. Um, and, and you have politicians drawing the lines in many places. And unfortunately, politicians are, uh, you know, looking out for themselves in, in, in this kind of way and drawing the maps um, picking their voters and not letting voters pick them. So uh, we are leading these various cases across the country and trying to get fair maps in place. We we haven't been able to do it for this midterm in terms of getting certain remedies in, in, in place. There are some places like North Carolina where there has been a new map um, and um, there's litigation ongoing before the Supreme Court, but the map is in place for this upcoming, this current election. Um, but um, But we are confident that we are going to see some fairer maps in place before uh, the presidential election. So don't give up. Keep fighting. Keep having your voices heard in the process. It's really, really, truly important as uh, these challenges are ongoing. Audrey, as someone who, who covered Austin politics very closely, what are you watching longer term? And as you watch the city reshape with demographic changes. What stands out to you? Yeah, um, definitely. As you mentioned earlier, I am now the housing reporter. And and one reason for that is that it's just become affordability has been an issue for a while here in Austin. But during the pandemic, we saw, as we did in many cities in the country, housing prices skyrocket. Um, They rose at historic rates, both rental and for sale homes. And so, you know, here in Austin, we have, for example, uh, a bond on the ballot. Uh, The city's asking voters to let them borrow $300 million to build affordable housing. Um, And we also have candidates who say, you know, they want to change uh, what's called the land development code. They want to allow more housing to be built. Um, We have a lot of uh, city council candidates on the ballot right now who are espousing those ideals. Um, And so I really think things like housing and transportation are going to be some of 
if not the biggest issues issues here in Austin when folks head out to uh, the ballot and cast their votes for, as you mentioned, those down uh, ballot issues. That's Audrey McGlinchey. She's the housing reporter for KUT. She was formerly the City Hall reporter. Audrey, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much. Coming up, we turn to a different area of the country. The Central Valley of California is one of the more conservative parts of the state. We'll talk to a reporter from there about what she sees playing out in these midterms and beyond. Back with more in just a moment. Now let's turn to a different part of the country, the Central Valley of California. It's one of the most conservative parts of the state. While more than 63% of Californians voted for Joe Biden in 2020, only 52% voted for him in Fresno County. And in Kern County, where Bakersfield sits, they went for Trump by 10 percentage points. Joining us to talk about Central California as a red island in a blue state is Sarith Hawk. She's the politics and government reporter for KVPR. KVPR is also part of our Remaking America project, looking at how democracy works or not around the country. Sarith, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Sarith, how would you describe Central California's political landscape? You know, it's definitely a more conservative base, like you said, much more conservative than California for what it's known for, which is so much more progressive. And uh, part of that reason is because our identity is really based in our agriculture. And so uh, a lot of the policies tend to reflect interests of farmers, more conservative farmers. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our representatives hold a lot of sway in, in that regard. Um, and right now we're seeing a lot of clashes in that because, uh, you know, a lot of the the people that are in power in the city centers are much more liberal and, and having more progressive policies. Um, and so, yeah, we're seeing definitely a clash in that lately. So what does that mean for the relationship between that area and the rest of the state. It's interesting because, you know, the governor, Governor Newsom, is uh, much more known to be progressive and can also kind of be seen as representing uh, interests that may be more in line with coastal cities sometimes as far as climate change and environment. And that can clash with what's happening with agriculture and what farmers need in terms of water and what we're dealing with drought. Um, And also the effects of having these heavy industries um, having an impact on health uh, as far as uh, drinking water, access to clean drinking water or or pollution, um, all the air pollution, where some of the worst parts of it uh, in the country are here in the Central Valley. Let's go to a message we got from Wendy in Monterey, California. I don't feel a lot of pressure or a lot of difference. I live in California and it's primarily Democrat and I live here for that reason. However, when I lived in San Francisco, it was very interesting because we voted as a block. The 95% of the city would vote liberal Democrat every single year. And that was, it felt wonderful. But however, Orange County always canceled us out. Wendy, thanks for that message. Now, Sarith, Fresno, the city, is more progressive than Fresno County, where it sits. What friction have you seen between the two when it comes to issues that are affecting the area? Yeah, they can often be strained. Uh, They do have to work together for for a lot of um, 
issues and a lot of policies and programs. Um, the city itself is, the leadership is younger, they're more progressive. Uh, they have been enacting policies that focus on homelessness and housing, uh, things that are much more centered with an urban population. And the county has much more outlying areas that are rural that have interests of conservative farmers. And so uh, often those needs are very different I'd love to hear a little bit more about the housing piece, Aretha, because we heard earlier about the rising cost of living in Austin, and we know California is a notoriously expensive place to live. How does the Central Valley compare to the rest of the state? Yes, it's it's really... Uh it's really bad here. It's, uh, you know, one of the biggest issues I, I would say that we're facing is is lack of affordable housing. And that just comes from years and institutions of not being able to build enough units. And you know, that, as we saw in many cities during the pandemic, that really caught up to us. And so increasingly, rents are rising. Uh, people are not able to, to meet those demands. And we're seeing rates of homelessness really being affected and rising throughout the Central Valley. I would say uh, one of the worst areas um, in, in California. So how has that shaped the county's political landscape and demographics? You know, it's, it's much, it's still... They're, they're still trying to um, make up for it with, of course, all the federal funding, um, but it's tough. It's tough. You know, they're, they're all trying to work together. They're really trying to fast track funding to get affordable housing built. Um, but it hasn't really changed who's been elected. Um, we are seeing a lot of the same kind of leadership that's in the county and um, in the city. It's it's also in the last election, we saw the same, I guess, number of Democrats being elected back. Um, so our, our leadership hasn't reflected the need for any changes. Um, it's really doubling down on policies that help to mitigate the, the homelessness rate and, and the lack of affordable housing here. And Saritha, are you seeing any demographic shifts shifts in, in Central Valley that could reshape politics in the area? We're definitely seeing, you know, it, it used to be that the Latino population was um, less represented, but it's actually almost right at the majority now. In Fresno County, it's majority Latino. It's right at the half mark in, in the city of Fresno. Um, definitely very, very represented um, throughout the Central Valley. And, and we are seeing that reflected in the leadership as well. People um, are aware of, of, of policies uh, that need to help communities of color, lower income communities, which um, is really the Central Valley is, is known for that um, because of agriculture. There are a lot of outlying communities that uh, need drinking water, need roads, need, uh, you know, access to services. And so the demographics are really shaping the way politicians are shaping their policies. Sophia, for people considering moving to a state that more closely aligns with their political beliefs, what are the consequences of losing these political islands? Yes, um, I, I completely understand why this is important and even necessary for some people to to do this, to pick up and move. I think, for example, about medical care for trans youth, 
that's denied, what does that mean for the health and security of your family? So I understand um, certainly the feeling of of needing to pick up and, and move to a place where you know you're going to feel safe, that the policies reflected in your uh, day-to-day life are going to be meaningful um, and keep you safe and secure and thriving. But I, I would point out that moving and, and removing your perspective from the communities that you're in that, that's in many cases not going to make the problem that the problems that this country is facing in terms of political polarization and dilution of the strength of your voice any any better. Likely, it will make it worse and exacerbate so the extremity of views that we are seeing, as well as um, political islands in in, in states themselves, um, making that even more stark. So. I, I do urge people to think about how to make a difference in their communities, trying to have those tough conversations, trying to change hearts and minds. Um, but I also think there are many people who don't have the luxury, I would say, of picking up and moving to a new place uh, for so many different reasons. And if you are in a position where you have um, the ability to support other individuals who find themselves um, at the mercy of particular laws that are threatening their security, their survival, their, their health, their safety, um, being in place to help those communities, strengthen those communities, find other ways to ensure that these people are supported and safe, um, I think that's a huge value that you bring to where you are um, and as, you, as we talked about a little bit earlier, demographics constantly change. Um, we saw huge changes in demographics um, in this country over the last 10 years, and um, you never know exactly what will happen in, in your community um, over, the t- over a long haul. So easy enough for me to say, someone who lives um, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, but I do think it's extraordinarily important to think about the polarization of this country. You're frustrated at what you're seeing um, at the federal level in Congress, um, moving isn't necessarily um, going to change very much. In fact, it'll probably make it worse. Sarif, how has morale been among Central Valley voters leading up to the election? Do they seem to be engaged? They do. Um, you know, in Fresno County, they're expecting at least a 50% turnout. And and that's kind of been a, a trend that we were seeing in past elections. Um, and I would say people are are definitely aware of the issues. Um, They're engaged. Uh, We've seen a lot of community engagement leading up to the election as well. Um, A lot of people participating in public meetings, um, giving public comment about things that matter to them. Um, Certain issues, like we're dealing with a measure that uh, is heavily about funding transportation and fixing roads throughout Fresno County. And that got a lot of uh, feedback, a lot of public outcry from people. So people are engaged. They're aware of the big issues that are are happening in the Central Valley, and uh, we're expecting a, a pretty good turnout for this this midterm. Sophia, some, including President Biden, have framed these midterm elections as a referendum on democracy itself and how well it is or isn't working. What's your read? You know, I. I understand the message around that. I mean, what we're seeing in some of these elections across the board, um, we have people who are running, um, who are election deniers, who are saying essentially that um, our democracy, the people that are in political power right now, um, are somehow there um, improperly. And that um, scares me a little bit, or at least concerns me, 
um, that there are people that are um, basically running uh, with a position of tearing down uh, the structures of this country. And um, um, I do think that um, seeing those individuals on the ballot um, and uh, having those voices as part of the political discourse is one that is, like I said, extraordinarily concerning and I would hope that people think about that when they are ha have cast their ballot and are currently in the process of voting um, and thinking of, about whether or not, uh, you know, that's the kind of democracy that we want to see. Uh, so it's very important. These midterms are, are crucial for so many different issues. And um, I'm hoping that people think about it, read about their positions of their candidates and all the races, including the down ballot races, that they take the time to understand all the ballot, ballot measures and referendum that are on their ballots and weigh in directly on those particular political and policy issues um, and make their voices heard across the board. That's Sophia Lynn Lakin. She's interim co-director of the Voting Rights Project at the ACLU. Also with us today, Sarith Hawk, the politics and government reporter for KVPR in Fresno, California. Sarith, Sophia, thanks to you both. This conversation was part of our Remaking America collaboration with KUT Public Radio in Austin, Texas, and KVPR in Fresno, California. We've partnered with them and four other public radio stations this year to explore how well our democracy is working. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.